add my welcome to you this morning. And do invite you to turn to John chapter 19. Once you get there, just put your finger in that place and hold that spot. And uh, just for a couple moments, I want to ask you to give your attention to the screen over here. I want to show you a photograph of a painting. Alec, you can go ahead and turn the lights out. I, I realize this is not going to be ideal, but uh, this painting was created by an artist, artist by the name of Antonia Cesari. And uh, Cesari lived and painted during the 1800s and had a particular interest in reproducing scenes from the Bible. And this specific painting was created later in his life. It's considered his masterpiece. Um, the original work, I believe, still hangs in the National Gallery of Art in Rome. And the title of this painting is Eke Homo, which is Latin and translated means Behold the Man. Both those words and the scene that is depicted here are taken directly from John chapter 19. So, of course, there's nothing uh, <laughs> compare is, comparing, uh, compared to standing in front of an original work of art, and we're not in the gallery, so it's really hard to take in the richness of the colors and the genius of the artist's nuance and all that he means to have us see. But I'm going to try to do something here, explain what Cesare is showing us. What we're looking from the vantage point of Pilate's Hall. Um, you're standing, as it were, standing further in Pilate's Hall, and, and you're looking out through these two large Roman columns across the courtyard that stands between the Roman headquarters and the temple, and see the temple sort of dominating the, the background there. And in the middle distance is a crowd that is gathered in front of Pilate's Hall. And every one of the figures um, in the foreground is very important. On the, the right is um, Pilate's wife with her back turned toward her husband, back turned toward the man. And you could see her face. It's deeply troubled by what's going on. Next to her, uh, attempting to comfort her, is her handmaiden. And right behind Pilate's wife is a bearded man with a scroll in his hand. He's a, he's a Greek philosopher. He's a man trained in the wisdom of the times, of the ages. He's standing ready to interpret and apply that wisdom to the circumstances, to the situation of this Roman court here. It, it was essential uh, to every Roman court um, that there would be present a, a Greek wise man. On the... Um, on the far left, again, it's a little dark, but up in the left corner there, there are the helmets of the Roman soldiers, and they have already engaged in significant, let's call it bullying, mockery, some measure of physical brutality toward Jesus. 
and they are now standing waiting to learn what their next orders are going to be. In front of them, standing right behind a large chair, um, a chair which is Pilate's judgment seat, there's a Roman statesman. Uh, he's probably Pilate's chief personal advisor, and he's standing there, he's leaning forward, listening carefully to what Pilate's saying. He's there to make sure that, that Pilate speaks with political correctness, handling the situation in uh, the best possible way. And then right in the middle of the painting is Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and he's leaning out and over the railing, speaking, um, especially to the Jewish leaders who've gathered there. Some of them, some of them are up on the roof of the, the, the temple there. They're standing, trying to get this crowd fired up against Jesus. Jesus, you know, you could see their hands raised. And a pilot is leaning over, having already handed out what he had hoped would serve as, um, I guess you'd just say a placating punishment on Jesus. He had hoped that this, this lighter punishment might be enough, enough to end things right then and there. And he's now leaning over to the crowd, motioning back to Jesus with his hand and saying, look. Look at this man on whose account you are so threatened. Behold this man who has you so stirred up, so offended. Look at, look at how pathetic he is. He's a nothing. What do you want me to do with him? Isn't this enough? Can't we just be done with this whole deal? And, and it is a decisive moment. And it is in this very moment, this decisive moment, that we find ourselves in John chapter 19. I'm going to do something a little bit different today, um, not the way we would normally engage with the text. But what I'm going to do is that I'm going to walk us through the passage. I want to read it, and I'll pause along the way, make some comments, provide some explanation of what's happening, how it contributes to the meaning, the main point of the text. And then when we get to the main point, and there is a main point, a culminating point in verse 30, summarized in three simple words, it is finished. Actually, in the Greek, that's just one word. Um, it is finished. The, the very last Things spoken by Jesus. It's there that we're going to hit the pause button and ask the question, what does this mean? Why is it significant for us? It is finished. But before we do anything else, let's pray. And so, Lord, we, we turn to you again, confessing our Dependence on you to open our eyes, to open our hearts to what you have spoken, what you have revealed, what you have communicated about yourself, specifically about your son. And we ask that you might fulfill the promised work of your Holy Spirit to apply the truth of Christ to us in a way that, that gospel work gets done. 
just mindful today that in a season when we're thinking of birth, the birth of Jesus. Birth is a pleasant thing. It's, it's a happy thing. It's a thing to rejoice in. Death is a horrible thing. It's a cursed thing. And uh, death by crucifixion, death on a cross, is particularly offensive to us. And so we would ask that in this real culminating point in the Gospel of John, you might, you might communicate yourself to us in this, this season and in this truth, the ultimate reason for the birth of the Son of God. Please accomplish your purpose among us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to follow along. You can turn the lights back on, Alec. <clears throat> I invite you to follow along now as I read uh, John chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 1, and, and we're going to make our way all the way through verse 37. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So right off the bat, it's important to note that, that this is not... This is not that brutal scourging that Jesus would receive a little bit later on. He will receive a scourging. It will be later, and it will be horrendous. But this would have been a um, comparatively light whipping, kind of a warning shot. Um, it's meant for troublemakers, meant to teach a lesson Clearly, what Pilate hoped for here is that it would be sufficient to satisfy the Jews so that he could just be done with this whole business. And the, the soldiers, of course, they, they pick up on this talk that they've been hearing uh, between Pilate and the Jews of Jesus being a king. So they start joking with each other and joking with Jesus. Hey, you know, a king needs a crown. Let's make him a crown. Royalty needs robes to look royal, so let's, let's do him up. And, and so they, there's joking and mocking, and then it gets physical, and it gets rough going on. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands, and then they bring him back to Pilate, and Pilate then went out again and said to them, to the Jewish leaders, that is, see, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, steps forward into the plain view of this crowd, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold. The man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate, and now he's, I mean, he's just utterly exasperated with these people, he says to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. 
And, and, and that statement has a remarkable effect on Pilate. In verse 8, it says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So he's already aware that something's different about Jesus. And, and now there's this thing about him claiming to be the Son of God. So there, there was in the Roman mindset the, an idea, possibility, of there being divine men. They believed that there were certain individuals who possessed certain divine powers. And clearly, hearing this, Pilate wonders, you know, what, a, what am I dealing with here? What, what do I have on my hands? So in verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? You can almost sense a new level of urgency, a new level of concern in Pilate's voice. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. See what they're doing? <laughs> they're threatening Pilate. They're saying, hey, what if word gets out? What if Caesar hears that you have freed a man who is a threat to the kingdom? What, what if it gets back to Caesar that you've actually released someone who claims to be a king? So there's this power play going on, a battle of wills between Pilate, the Roman governor, and this collection of, of Jewish religious leaders. You are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. So, it's now approaching noon. They had been at this, according to John 18.28, since early morning. So, in other words, what John is meaning for us to get out of this is, is that these proceedings, they have been dragging on and on and on and on. And so, he says to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now that is a stunning statement. The Jews hated the fact that they were under Roman rule. And they were so offended, so violently offended and opposed to Jesus that they are willing to own the kingship of Caesar. 
We have no king but Caesar. And what makes this even more astonishing and more really offensive is God was their king. They had, as a people, a sacred covenant with God. And there was nothing more foundational to that sacred covenant than the fact that God and God alone was their king. And they had waited for centuries for God's promised and long-awaited Messiah to come who would establish God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign on earth. And so it is just, it's just mind-bending that they would with the Messiah standing right there in front of them, declare, kill him! We want Caesar for our king. So, he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross. It would have been the, you know, the cross beam, the horizontal piece. The, 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 um, you know, the vertical posts uh, were typically uh, in permanent positions along the roadways on the edge of the cities. That was so that everybody could, could see this death when it happened. He went out to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There... They crucified him. Four words that um, one commentator calls it's the greatest understatement in all of Scripture. There they crucified him. So I, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I can't get too graphic here, but. It's important, I believe, that to briefly explain at least what is behind those four words. After having uh, arrived at the place of crucifixion, Jesus would have been made to lie down on his back um, with that crossbeam under his shoulders and his now outstretched arms. And his arms would have been nailed to the crossbeam probably in this area here. And then he would have been lifted up, kind of hoisted up, body just dragged up so that the cross beam could then be affixed uh, onto the vertical post that was already there. And, and then once he was lifted up, his feet would have been overlapped and with a single spike driven through them into that upright beam to hold him in place. And that's where he would hang until he died. And that death would typically take Quite a while, hours, at least sometimes days. Uh, crucifixion is, is death by asphyxiation. So it, as the body hangs, there's pressure on, on the chest cavity, makes it very hard for the victim to get a breath. And so they have to pull themselves up with their arms or push up with their feet just to get open the lungs up enough to get some air. And the pain would have been uh, absolutely unspeakable. Crucifixion was a gory, messy, purposefully horrific way to die. There they crucified him. 
and with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between. Pilate also wrote an inscription, inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. It, many read it because there were a lot of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So anybody from any other part of the area could see it, see him, see the inscription, understand it, understand what was going on. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Now, uh, several times in this passage, we see that phrase, that sentence. This was to fulfill the scripture. This was to fulfill the scripture. This w- J- John writes those words and repeats those words and, uh, and the scripture quotations with them. And he means to tell us, he means to communicate to us that everything is going according plan. Everything, even the little details of things that are happening, they are going on in accordance with God's divine plan and purpose. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman. Does that ring any bells? Woman. Remember way back in John chapter 2, back when everything was, you know, happy, peaceful at the wedding in Cana, and they run out of wine, and the mother of Jesus comes to him and, do something about this. You know, they ran out of wine. Do something. And and do you remember what Jesus said? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My, remember, my hour has not yet come. And now here we are smack dab in the middle of his hour, in the, in the midst of his suffering, and from the depth of his affection, he addresses her with care. Woman, and then nodding to John, he says, Behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to be to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. 
So uh, you know, a man who has been beaten, a man who's been bleeding, a man who's been hanging on a cross, what would have at that point been the heat of the day, he would have been desperately dehydrated. So a, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Remember what Jesus had said? Um, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And so here, here, here it is. Here he is. He says, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. L loved ones, this is the main point of the text. Um, we'll come back here in a moment and just let the significance of that land on us. But I'll finish this out. Finish out the scene. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. So, so this is a custom. It, um, it was a regular practice. It was done in order to hurry up the death of those hanging on the crosses. It, it wasn't, wasn't so much to you know, add more trauma and torture. It, it was done... Uh, what, what it did was it um, deprived them of the ability to push up in order to get air. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. They meant for the end to come more quickly. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Th those of you with some, um, some medical background would, would understand this more than I can probably, better than I can explain it. But, you know, if the chest cavity of a human being has experienced severe trauma, severe injury to the upper body, and that chest has not been penetrated, frequently there will be this buildup of fluid, and it's going to collect inside the lining of the rib, rib cage between that and the lining of the lungs. And while it's gathering there, if there's, a, if there's a significant amount, it's going to separate. So this lighter serum rises, and the darker, heavier blood settles. It, it is a clear sign of death. So when the cavity is pierced, out flows what appears to be blood and water. But, but the, the main point in John's making and recording is that he wants his readers to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. I'm going to repeat this again and again and again so that you may also believe.
For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And may God bless the reading of his word and may the spirit of Jesus apply to our hearts and minds the glorious significance of this word. So, loved ones, Jesus said, it is finished. What does that mean? I I trust that you know, those of you that gather regularly with us for worship, I trust that you know that we love the gospel here at Emmaus Road Church. I trust that you know that our purpose is to be a people who have a deep personal understanding of the gospel and a deep personal appreciation for the gospel. Our aim is to be a people who are being practically, functionally shaped by the gospel. I trust that you know that what is of greatest importance to us is to be a people who really understand and we really love and we really live in the good of the gospel. So listen, this is so important. We do not believe that the gospel is only a message for unbelievers to hear. Hear that? It's not our conviction that the gospel is a message only for unbelievers to hear. We see the gospel as a truth that affects, and it powerfully affects, the lives of believers. So, it's crucial to us that we become a people who know how to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Why is that so crucial? Well, it's crucial because every day, as believers, we are tempted to live according to some other truth. Tempted to believe and to live and to listen as if we we have something to do, something that we can offer in order to earn God's acceptance. Or we have something, or we have to do something in order to maintain God's acceptance. Or that our relationship with God depends on how we feel. Or that God cannot accept me because I thought this, or I did that over the last few days or weeks. Loved ones, every day our tendency is to live controlled by some other message. And that's why we are unashamedly and intentionally aiming to be a people, a gospel-centered people, meaning a people who love the gospel, live the gospel, and preach the gospel to ourselves. So, what's the gospel? (laughs) When we... uh, oftentimes ask this question, um, whether it's in our foundations class or whether it's uh, in our membership interviews, you can probably identify with this. There's, there's just this kind of a, 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 a pausing 
hesitant. I mean, it's just the kind of thing that we all assume we, we understand completely, right? We, we, we know the gospel, and then when it's time to explain it, you just go, ah, 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 ah. Um, so what is it? The word gospel simply means good news, namely the good news that through Jesus, God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. We are lost. We're hopelessly lost. We are far out at sea. We are drowning. There is no hope for rescue. And then God provides a rescue. God successfully causes a saving, a rescuing. And God planned it from the beginning, and God has announced it for centuries, and throughout the entire Old Testament, over and over and over again, we read that there is a Savior coming, and then Jesus is born, and when he arrives, he himself announces that salvation has come. If anyone believes in me, he says, he or she will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, I have come to accomplish what God promised. I've come to do what is necessary in order for salvation to be delivered. And, and now here in John 19.30, Jesus says with his very last breath, It is finished. It is accomplished. What is it? What did Jesus go through all this, all that he experienced in his life, all that he experienced in these last few chapters, all that he experienced in the garden before Caiaphas, all that he experienced before Pilate, all that he experienced on that road to Golgotha, all he experienced while hanging on the cross, what did he go through all that to accomplish? Or to say it differently, what difference does what he did make? And what does that mean for us when Jesus says, it is finished? Well, it means two things. One, because it is finished, there is Real salvation available to all who will put their trust in Christ. Real salvation available to all who will put their trust in Christ. Real salvation. Real forgiveness for all that you've done. Your sins washed away, removed as far as the east from the west. Real forgiveness, real reconciliation with God, real peace with God, and a real right relationship with God, real adoption by God. You are now His child, enjoying all of the benefits of being the object of His special love, all the benefits of being joined to Him, and a real inheritance for you the rest of eternity in heaven. All because of what Christ did. And because it's finished. It's accomplished. 
There is now something real that is available to all of those who will put their trust in Christ Jesus. And so the question is, have you received it? You could be a young person sitting here this morning, growing up in a family just like I did, where my parents uh, insisted that we regularly, faithfully attended a Sunday worship gathering. Maybe you, you're being raised right now in a Christian family. But you know, you know that up to this point, you have not put your trust in Jesus. You, you might be just riding on your parents' faith, or you've just simply never, you've, you've just never taken that, made that decisive step toward a faith commitment in Jesus Christ. Listen, there is real salvation available to you. Because of what Christ did. And because what he did is finished. The work is done. Will you take that step of faith? Will you entrust yourself to what Jesus has done for you? Maybe you're sitting here and you're an adult and you've and you've heard this story so many times. But you have not put your trust in Jesus. And you know you have not put your trust in Jesus. Do you, do you understand what Jesus said? It is finished. Means for you. Friends, there is a reality. There is something real that has been avail made available to you. And when Jesus says it is finished, he's saying, I am now delivering a completed package to you. There is salvation to all who will put their trust in Christ. It is finished. It's now available. You, you see, the, the fact that the work is finished, it just makes all the difference in the world. And that's because now there's something real that's available. It wasn't available before, but now it is real. Salvation is available to all who, of those who will put their trust fully in Christ. There's a second thing that it is finished means for us here. Because it is finished... Everything that was necessary for salvation has been done. Everything that was necessary, everything that needed to happen for salvation, it's finished. It's completely done. No other thing remains that you have to do. Jesus didn't say when he's hanging on the cross, okay, I, I've... I finished my part, implying that now we have to do our part to complete the project. No, he said, God's perfect provision of salvation is finished. It's accomplished. It's a Christian. You're trusting Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said on the cross. You don't, I don't, all who are trusting Christ's finished work, 
we don't have to present the good stuff, our good stuff. <laughs> you don't have to try to smuggle your goodness into the deal. Thinking it will add to your credit before God, that all that does is diminish the cross. It belittles the work that Jesus accomplished. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He offered the perfect sacrifice that we could never be. There was not a blemish of guilt on him. And he offered himself up willingly in our place. And he took our sin upon himself. And God took his perfect righteousness and he applies it to all those who believe. And that is not only all that's necessary. You, you, you can't add anything to it. Anyway, it's perfect. It's already perfectly done. So, believers, rest in the wonderful words Jesus has spoken to you. It is finished. It's all taken care of. And trust fully what Jesus has done. What, what good news this is. It's good news for those who are lost. There's real salvation that Christ has accomplished. It's finished. It's also good news for all who have been found. Christ has done it all so I can rest. My soul can rest. Rest in the completion of the salvation that has been purchased for me by this man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And so, though the work, the necessary work to accomplish salvation has been done, perfectly done, perfectly accomplished, nothing to add to it. There is a response that's necessary. A response of entrusting ourselves to that work. And so for those here today who know that you have never entrusted yourself to that work, You can pray this way. God, I know that I am a sinner and that I am broken. And everything in this world that I have pursued and in which I have found pleasure, it has proven to be like water through my fingers. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Please make me whole. I believe that you came to earth. I believe that you were born. I believe you lived a perfect life. I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin that I should pay. I believe that you rose from the dead. And now I'm asking you to come into my life and help me to recover and help me to pursue God's design for me. I ask that in your name. And for believers, 
there's nothing more that we bring to the table. We entrust ourselves to Jesus. But there is a functional response to what Jesus has done. And I think a good way for us to respond is, is to sing the gospel. And not just to sing in some perfunctory way, just making words and notes happen. But as a full, wholehearted expression of our delight and our joy and our trust in what Jesus has done for us. Let's sing with all of our hearts and praise to him. Let's stand together.